Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, April the 7th, 2022. It is Thursday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a great lineup for you guys today. Starting off, we've got Ron Paul and his team with the Liberty Highlights for the week. Dr. Paul talks about the question, if people can't steal, why can the government steal? I have an add-on to that one that, that I always throw at people when they give me moo, 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 social contract, moo, 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 election, moo, 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 deferred, moo, 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 whatever. I got, a, I got, I got a, a, just a little add-on to what Dr. Paul has to say that just shuts that shit down so quickly. I've never had a good answer to the simple question that I'm going to ask at the end of Dr. Paul's segment. Never. If somebody out there who believes in government has a good answer for it, I'd love to hear it from you. Dan McAdams will talk about the suspicious nature of what's being called the Bucha Massacre, uh, the fact that Russia's being blamed for it, and Russia's calling for an investigation by the UN Security Council into it, and the UK is vetoing the investigation. That's kind of suspicious. I'll tell you what I think about it. Chris Rossini will talk about the constant emotional manipulation by the state and how to separate from it. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about nutritional support for a 10-year-old who decided to go vegan. I completely agree with his advice. I don't agree with where he's coming from on saying the child is concerned about their health. This is going to be a day where I have some differing opinions with some expert council members. I think it's a good, healthy thing. It's not a malicious difference. It's just I don't, I don't think Ken's right that this little girl is concerned about her health. I don't think that's what's going on here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Nick Ferguson is going to talk about dealing with very flat and poor draining land if you want to graze with cattle. Derek Bonpietro will talk about choosing a generator for a homestead and going off-grid during a build-out. The MT Knives Talon versus the MT Knives Genesis. They're both neck knives. What's the difference? Patrick Roman will talk about that since he designed and builds both of them. He's got to answer it. But you're going to get a lesson in blade profile here. And I'm going to throw in my little uh, hoo for the Talon, which I just realized I wanted another one of those when he did this, and I went ahead and ordered one before you guys buy them all. Tim Toolman Cook, well, remember last week I said we were going to do this, and then we didn't, and I, 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 I hosed over Amy Dingman, too. Two segments missed getting included last week. Yep. Well, Tim Toolman Cook's going to talk to us this week for real about tossing j stuff that is junk, even though it has value, when you're doing junk cleanup. He's talking about doing it professionally. Somebody hires you to you know, clean out their aunt's place after she passes on and they don't want to deal with everything. And how do you determine what goes to the junkyard and what goes to the junk pile in your backyard? Because it's going to be worth something someday. I have a real simple little add-on to that that I've started to, to assess with my own stuff. And I think this will help people not just that are doing the handyman thing and clearing out junk, but like, When you're going through your own shop buildings and stuff, do I keep this or not? My grandfather was the biggest junk man on planet Earth, and I've turned into one myself. I, I, I remember thinking, why didn't he get rid of that? And now I'm sitting there going, Jack, why don't you get rid of that? And, I mean, we even see in our off home offices and our offices at work and stuff, don't we? I bet you, a lot of you guys, especially in your 40s and 50s, you have a giant bag full of cables that you might need someday. Giant back, all twisted together in knots, right? Some of you maybe have them all organized and all coiled up properly. Still a giant bag of them. 
Some of them go back to like 2000 or earlier. Amy Damon will talk about how you know when you're doing enough at homeschooling. Another expert council member. It was supposed to be on last week's show. Segment was supposed to be on last week's show that I didn't include. I don't know how those two fell off. Uh, but we're going to talk about that. And I have an add-on to that one as well. And uh, it looks like I almost left somebody off again. Derek Pietro has a segment today. What's wrong with me? On choosing a generator for off-grid use. Did I say that? Did I say that? I thought I said Yeah, I did. Okay, it's in there. I'll make sure that I get it in. Wow. Come on, Jack. Get with the times, bro. So what am I going to talk about? I have a quote for you today for my segment by Nelson Mandela. And this is what Nelson Mandela said. He said, I was called a terrorist yesterday, but when I came out of jail, many people embraced me, including my enemies. And that is what I normally tell other people who say those who are struggling for liberation in their country are terrorists. I'm going to answer a question for you in regards to that quote. Why are those who seek liberty always referred to as terrorists by their government. And I'll tell you what, in essence, it's the same reason that if you disagree with the mainstream narrative about, oh, I don't know, climate change, not even there isn't any, but you just don't completely agree with everything they say in every one of their solutions, you are a what? A climate change denier linking you to a Holocaust denier from World War II. Right? If, if, you, if you disagree with anything about the COVIDs, you're spreading dangerous medical misinformation. You want to kill old people and grandma. If you disagree with just about anything in the mainstream narrative, you are a right-wing extremist racist. It's what you call being intellectually lazy but knowing how to be effective at the same time through maligning innocent and peaceful people with derogatory terms and using groupthink stupidity to win, and unfortunately, when you have a society as dumbed down as ours, it's very effective. It goes right back and hooks into Chris Rossini's segment you're about to hear on the constant emotional manipulation by the state. And I didn't even plan it that way. It just seems that, like, I don't know, Dr. Paul and his crew and, and, and us over here at TSP, we have a lot in common, I think, yeah. All right, before we, uh, before we do that, I just want to remind you real quick, You can always help out the Survival Podcast and the work we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have an item of the day for you today, but all my stuff I've ever done is there. It's reviewed. It's alphabetical by category. If I didn't buy it, spend my own money on it, I wouldn't recommend it to you. And the reason I don't have an item of the day today is when we talk about generators, I am going to completely disagree with the recommendation that Derek gives for the brand. Not not anything, but just the brand. And I have two generators I'm going to recommend, and if you use the links in the show notes today, call those the item of the day. All right, with that, let's go ahead and hear from Dr. Paul and his crew. If the government can't steal, or the, if people can't steal, why can the government? And the, the Butcher Massacre and its suspicious nature in Ukraine, and the constant emotional manipulation by the state from Chris Rossini in that order. Why is it that we have come to the point uh, to accept the opposite of liberty, where people make up their minds about everything they do, as long as they don't hurt people, to the point where it's the role of government to be the interveners, because we have these noble souls are sacrificing so much 
to go and become a volunteer congressman and uh, to tell the people how they have to live. And then you have, and uh, then you end up with Fauciism, you know, uh, on this noble cause because those are the kind of people that will take care of everybody. Same way in foreign policy. So if I think about interventionism and think that uh, government cannot and should not be allowed to do anything that you or I can't do. We, we can't go to our neighbor and steal, but why is it a, uh, why is it almost like a sacred duty and uh, giant rewards if I have a good contact with my congressman and I send my congressman in next door and steals from him? And that's what, that's what all this taxation and inflation is about. It's an immoral activity. So if, if governments couldn't intervene in the personal habits and lives and finances of individuals, uh, the world would be different. And the, and, and, uh, the, the word to remember around here is what would happen. Everything would be voluntary. And people say, oh, total anarchy. It's horrible. This, that would do it, destroy the world. Yeah, to have some moral rules that people voluntarily follow, like they quit stealing, killing, and 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 uh, hurting people, and 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 they say that's anarchy. So they lose this whole concept of personal liberty that we own our own lives, and that the world is better, not more chaotic, because of the rules of the marketplace based on more personal morality and a higher law. Believe me, will be much, much more peaceful than the anarchy that we're moving toward today. Yeah, the, the thing to emphasize at first is we do not know what happened in this small town. Uh, I've seen some pictures that we won't show, uh, but it is very grisly. It's very uh, horrible and disgusting. It looks like at least dozens, if not more, civilians dead, uh, many with their hands tied behind their backs. Uh, we don't know who did it. Uh, but I think we do know because we've been in this business long enough, going back before the show and back to, you know, back to the days of Colin Powell uh, and at the UN, et cetera, that if if everyone agrees, quote unquote, in the U.S., all the media, all the neocons, all the neoliberals, if all they they all agree on that one thing means one thing, then our antenna go up. It doesn't mean we instinctively disagree, but our antenna does go up, and this is exactly what's happening. And we have uh, our friend Joe Laurie at Consortium News to thank for a very concise look at the timeline of what happened. And this is what's interesting. We, we can put that first one up because here's his article if anyone wants to go read it. Consortiumnews.com. He wrote a piece, Questions Abound, about Bucha Massacre. And here's a couple of things, okay, just in a nutshell. So the news broke on Sunday that hundreds of innocent people were slaughtered in Bucha, uh, not far from Kiev. Uh, immediately, of course, it was blamed on Russia. Russia did it. The U.S. pundits, the think tank warriors, they called for direct conflict. This is time to really go to war with Russia. Now, Russia did an interesting thing. They immediately called for a special session of the U.N. Security Council. They said, we immediately need to talk about this immediately. The U.K. chairs the council right now, and they said no. They said no twice, which is suspicious. Why don't they want to immediately take up the issue, especially when you have the evidence sitting there in the street that really needs an impartial investigation immediately. We don't know the fact. Could the Russians have done it? Absolutely. War is disgusting. War is ugly. It's despicable. But we have to at least raise some questions. At the very least, I think, Dr. Paul, just like we've done in Syria, where a couple of these gas attacks turned out to be false flags, we should be suspicious, take a deep breath, and try to figure out what's going on. What's hard to explain or for, hard for people to grasp is the, the constant uh, 
emotional manipulation. That's what modern-day politics and all those people that you name, the universities, the corporations, the media, the politicians, it's all about emotional manipulation and then capitalizing on it with power and money. And by far, the most uh, manipulated emotion is fear. That's the number one. But in this case, this billionaire tax, the emotion that they want to manipulate is envy. You know, we're going to rob the rich guy for you, you know, and that's, you know, they're manipulating you. They're making you think that that's what's ultimately going to happen. And people, they complain about billionaires, but they don't really think about where these billionaires are coming from. Think about these last few years with the lockdowns. I mean, who cleaned up? It was the big retailers while the little guy went, was forced to close and, and went out of business. And then the masks. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but the amount of money that was made on those masks that we found out don't even do very much, if anything, is amazing. And, and then the vaccines is another one. They were Big Pharma was making more money than ever, you know, and now we ditched all that. And like flipping a switch, we're back to the military contractors. You know, this is how these billionaires are made with government policies. They scare people. They 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 uh, foment envy and fear, and then they just clean up. And we saw that Biden wants to the military another eight hundred billion dollars in one year. And now they're, he's talking about, oh, we're going to tax those billionaires for you. Don't you worry about it. Come on. You know, they're not going to do any such thing. They're, they're making billionaires with their policies. So this shows, you know, and this is very hard to break out of, to stop believing all of these people, you know, because many of the people around you believe in them and they'll pressure you to believe it. But it can be done. You can no longer be emotionally manipulated by all of these people if you really don't want to anymore. Ah, a couple things there. One, let's start off with Ron Paul and him asking a simple question. Why can't, why can the government do a thing that we can't, right? Now, what people want to say with this is, well, see, they were elected by us. They are our representatives. We have given them the authority to do these things. Okay, so here's my question that no one has ever successfully answered for me except for something, something, something social contract, which is not a thing. That's a fabrication in your mind that you've invented and pulled out of your ass to answer something that you don't have a good answer for. So here's my question. How can I confer a right to another person that I do not have at first? If I don't have the right to take my neighbor's money or my neighbor's property or invade my neighbor's personal space, how can I confer to my government representative the right to do so? And the answer is I can't. I either have a right and I can confer the right to someone else to, to, to enact that right on my behalf. And that's how you could have a true libertarian government. A true libertarian government would have volunteers, like Ron said, you wouldn't be paid because how are you going to pay them? And they would only organize that which we had the right to organize ourselves and give us a framework to follow it. That would be it. And if you went to minarchism, which is not good enough for any anarchist, including me, but is a hell of a lot better than what we have, then you would have a very small, tiny area in which the government could use taxes to do things. And then what you would have to do to stay true to that spirit of minarchist libertarianism is this would all have to be paid with usage fees or at the most some form of a sales tax. That's the only way it could be done legitimately, and there would have to be a system by which even the sales tax could be avoided so that the government was providing some sort of assurance 
on tax goods. So then people would be able to say, well, I want the assurance. So it would be like a private certification. You know, for meat, let's say USDA came with a sales tax, but you don't have to use USDA. See how that works? And then a, a, a retailer could choose to only carry that, and then they would have to pass on the tax. Or they could choose not to. Now you have a volunteer society with a voluntary tax base. It would be a very small tax base, and it would be inherently limiting to what government could do. And you would also have to take away the ability of government to produce money at, on demand and for the government to borrow money. It would only be able to operate off its limited tax base. Then you'd have a small government and a pretty happy, polite society for a time. And in a few generations, this is why anarchists were not happy with this. This is why we say it's not good enough. What would happen in time is the government would use the limited power that it has to create another power. And then in time, it would use that power plus the limited powers you gave it initially to create another power. And every time it added a power, its ability to make a new power would increase. And you, I, I want you to think about something here. Anybody's ever heard fairy tales about genies and you get three wishes? What is the one thing you cannot wish for from the genie? More wishes. There's a reason. There's a lesson in that. Next up, the Butcher Massacre. The Russians are saying basically the Azov Battalion, which are the freaking neo-Nazis, whether you want to believe this or not, the actual say themselves, we are Nazis, that are an official National Guard militia in Ukraine are the ones that did it. My guess is there's plenty of massacre and plenty of blame and plenty of atrocity to go around for both sides. I've seen Zelensky calling for war crimes investigations, and yet as soon as Russia calls for it here, the U.K. magically is using its veto power and doesn't want it. Why do I think there's atrocities on both sides here? Because when you send men to war, you get atrocities. Period. Including Americans. I've seen footage, for instance, in Iraq in the early days of the second Gulf War, if you want to call it that. Not long after George Bush put up the banner on the ship that said mission accomplished of some U.S. soldiers filming the video themselves as they ran down an Iraqi and ran over him with a Bradley fighting vehicle. That's a war crime. And I don't care what he did before. That's a war crime. An unarmed man being run down in the streets with a Bradley fighting vehicle. That's a war crime. And it's not something that some photographer took out of contest because they, they talked, they shot it themselves. And they were screaming, get him, get him, get that MF or get his ass, get his ass. And they drove him, they drove over him. Because this is what war does to men. And you don't like why I said that? You don't want to think that about our people? We're humans. Soldiers are human beings. When you put them into a meat grinder, in time, it dehumanizes them. And this is what happens. So I'm sure there's atrocities on both sides. But it's very suspicious to me that the U.K. doesn't want a specific investigation into this thing that we've already determined that Russia did. It's funny to me. doesn't make sense. It's also interesting to me that YouTube has removed RT from their lineup. So you can't get RT on YouTube anymore and hear what the other side has to say. Those of you that have threatened me literally for telling you what the other side has to say... I think you're, you're freaking intellectually incapable of thinking for yourselves. That goes to Chris Rossini, the constant emotional manipulation by the state. Appeal to emotion is a fallacy. 
If I'm appealing to your emotion to get you to believe a thing rather than giving you facts and logic and reason, I'm using a fallacy. Sadly, I'm using a very, very effective one. And the dumber a society becomes, the more stupid you become. Remember Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity? If you missed that episode, go look it up. Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. A stupid person is more dangerous than the malicious person. And that is why your nation has, while screaming and screeching that teachers are heroes that do not wear capes, that they need to be paid more, and they do the most important work on the planet Earth, systematically altered educational curriculum to create the stupidest and most educated society in the history of the known world. You hear college students, recent grads, etc., referring to themselves this way, the most educated generation in history, and I can't find a job, I can't make a living, I'm the most educated person ever, but you're also stupid. And education does not equal intelligence. And if you are educated improperly, and you're convinced you're right because of your credentials, and you're wrong, you are stupid and dangerous, and you are highly subject to emotional-driven fallacy. And that's what every single thing that's been done and by direct manipulation over the past three years has been based on. Actually, for the last 40, easy. But it's in plain view. You have to be really stupid to not see the emotional manipulation that you've been subjected to in the last three years. If you don't see it, you're not, you can't be helped at this point. You're going to have to have some seminal come to Jesus internal moment for yourself. Or you're, you, you cannot be helped. Logic and reason will not work for you, and you probably aren't listening to me. You, you, if, if you gave it a shot, you probably already turned off the damn thing and went somewhere else, if you've heard this, if you are still subject to this emotional manipulation at a highly effective level anyway. We all are subject to it here and there. All right, let's go on to something different. Dr. Ken Berry talking about nutrition support for a 10-year-old who decided to go vegan. Hello, TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Tom from Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, his question is, do you have any advice for helping my 10-year-old daughter stay healthy after she's decided to become a vegetarian? Don't know how long this will last. A good point. We are a meat-heavy family. She is okay with stock. I make both beef and chicken uh, broth or stock. That's excellent. She'll eat eggs and dairy, but if she had her way, she'd live on waffles and maple syrup. Thanks for all you and Jack do. Uh, so, Tom, she's 10 years old, so she's going to be much more metabolically resilient and flexible. She's going to be more insulin sensitive than the average adult. Uh, and as you intimate in your question, I suspect this will be short-lived. Um, young boys and girls often will... Uh, make decisions like this that sound life-changing, and then three weeks later they forget about it. Uh, I applaud her for actually thinking about her diet. I don't agree with her decision, but she's 10 years old, so you get what uh, you expect. I would uh, make sure she gets plenty of eggs and uh, full-fat, real fermented cheese, uh, if you could include uh, butter, anything that you cook for her, Make sure there's butter, grass-fed if, if possible. And then any vegetables, make sure to explain to her that a vegetarian diet means you actually eat vegetables and that waffles 
and maple syrup are neither one. They're neither vegetables, okay? They are plant-based, but they're plant-based junk food. And so she might as well eat Cheetos and Ding Dongs and um, Lucky Charms. Those are also plant-based. Uh, but say, honey, if you're going to do this, then you need to do this right. You need to eat only vegetables. That's what being a vegetarian means. And any of the, the vegan or vegetarian gurus will tell her that waffles and maple syrup are not healthy. They're not good for you. And so she welcomed her and congratulate her on making a dietary decision, but make sure she's getting plenty of eggs and, and full-fat, real fermented cheese, cook everything in butter, and then make sure that she's drinking plenty of your beef and, and chicken bone broth. And I think she'll be completely fine, but don't allow her to eat junk food just because it's plant-based. This is an excellent opportunity for you to educate her on what real food actually is. So uh, don't denigrate her in any way. Applaud her decision to make a dietary choice and then help her understand what a proper human diet actually looks like. Great question. Thanks, guys. See you next time. All right. So I completely agree with the advice. And I said vegan when I introduced that. And vegan and vegetarian are highly different. And vegetarian is much easier to deal with. And she's not even fully vegetarian because if you're doing stock and animal Uh, you know, that comes from dead animal product, and maybe don't tell her that because at least you got that on your side. This is where I disagree, and it's not congratulating her that I disagree with. It's the belief that Dr. Ken has here that that's why this girl made this decision at the age of 10. I believe it's highly unlikely, not impossible, but highly improbable. I would bet 10 to 1 against that the motivation this child has for making this decision has a damn thing to do with her nutritional health. Usually, when young children, you know, early teens and back, especially girls, make this choice, they figure out that those cute little animals get bonked in the head with a giant bolt and killed, and that they realize the meaning of what they're doing when they're eating the flesh of an animal, and it bothers them. And there are a lot of even adults that they eat meat, But they don't want to think about it when they're doing it. And I'm going to tell you right now, my wife is one of these people. You do not talk about what you're eating while you're eating it if you want her to keep eating it. And she loves it. Because when she thinks about it, then she doesn't want to eat it. Especially if it's like a steak with a little more tooth to it. Like something like a New York strip versus a ribeye where you got to chew a little longer. And she starts thinking about the fact that it's a pretty brown-eyed cow. She doesn't want to eat it anymore. And this is probably an emotional decision. And it is the reason that's even important. One, I agree with you, it's probably temporary, but you don't know. Two, follow Ken's advice on nutrition, all right? But it is highly probable, especially if this child is in the education, a.k.a. indoctrination center, she may have been given accurate information about what happens to animals that are coming out of the, the traditional uh, system. With CAFOs and the like, how these animals are treated, how they're harmed, etc. And if you're sourcing your meat ethically, very gently you might want to probe into that a little bit and have that conversation. That if she feels that animals are abused by the system, that she's absolutely right. But there are ways to procure this nutrition, which is the natural nutrition of human beings, Without, without being unethical in the way we treat animals. That there's humane ways to process animals, there's humane ways to treat animals while they grow up. 
you might want to hold back on that for a 10-year-old a little bit longer, but you might want to at least start the discussion in that direction and find out if that's what you're dealing with. My gut is 99.9% that this is a decision about not hurting pretty animals versus my health is going to be better because I'm a vegetarian. I, I, I'll leave 0.1% that I'm possibly wrong. Next up, Nick Ferguson. I'm dealing with very flat land with poor draining soils when you want to graze cattle. Hey, guys. Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty on the road on a consulting tour recording an answer for the expert council while I'm cruising down the highway. So excuse me if you end up hearing navigation prompts or kids making noise. Hey, boys. Say hi. Hi. Say hi. Hi. All right, we've been traveling as a family, so the boys are in the back seat, and Katie is driving, so I can record for you guys. Thanks for all the consulting requests that have come in. Uh, I'll get you put on my contact list to notify you the next time I'm headed through your area. The Texas-Oklahoma trip is shaping up for the end of April to the beginning of March, and I might end up going as far south as San Antonio and up around Tulsa, so kind of a big, wide swath. And I'm also planning another trip out to Virginia through Tennessee and Kentucky, <clears throat> Alabama, Mississippi, but enough about my travels. Let's get into this question from Don, and he writes, Hi, Jack. I've been listening to the podcast off and on for the past year and a half, and I've been enjoying it. Thanks for all you do. I've especially been enjoying the current permaculture series. Question for you or someone on the expert council. What are some recommended permaculture techniques for dealing with excess water on flat, approximately 0.1% grade, heavy, poorly drained soils? I live in northwest Ohio in what used to be the Great Black Swamp on 12 sparsely wooded acres where I want to intensively graze cows and maybe sheep. The soil doesn't drain well, so when we get a lot of rain, it takes a while to dry up. All the farmers in our area use underground plastic perforated drain tile throughout all their fields to help drain the water to ditches. But this doesn't seem like a good permaculture solution. I was thinking of implementing some solution with swales and ponds to store the water for use during dry spells, but I haven't seen examples of that done in situations like mine, and I'm wondering if that would even work at all, or if it would turn my property into a marsh. Do you have any suggestions, or could you point me in the right direction? Thanks, Don Russell. Great question, Don, and I think it brings up a great principle that we need to be cognizant of when working with our ecosystems and within reasonable constraints. And this all goes back to the tendency of people, myself included, to look for the coolest or the sexiest uber permaculture solution, and then we end up spending tons of money solving what really is a simple problem. So let's not make the mistake of letting perfect be the enemy of good. It's really easy to do that. Um, so it's always a good idea to do a cost comparison and decide if the cost is worth the solution. Can we dig canals and raise the soil to a reasonable level to dry out the landscape? Absolutely. It's a great longer-term solution. But can we accomplish the same re end result of drier soils by draining the water to a waterway using drain tile, probably. Are you willing to shoulder the cost for something that will benefit your grandchildren, like earthworks, and are they the type of people who will be at all interested in learning how the system works and therefore be able to use it, or are they just going to sell it to a developer? So, you know, we have to think about this long-term stuff. You know, are we 
sinking tons of money and energy and resources into it to advantage future generations that aren't going to use it? Or have you developed that base, that interest in your heirs to create something, to make it worth creating something that they're going to benefit from? So that's something we have to think about. The second thing that came to mind is you want to graze sheep and cattle on marshland. The principle in permaculture you need to keep in mind is the question of whether or not it's appropriate to graze sheep and cattle on that land. Is it appropriate use? Sheep suffer greatly from parasite issues on wet, soggy bottomland. Cattle are less so, but still it's not a good environment for them. That's not their natural environment. They don't do well in wet, soggy ground. The question is, can you choose a more appropriate animal for the environment like, I don't know, ducks or geese? They thrive in those wetland areas. So, the expense of digging canals to concentrate the water and raise the soil level to dry it out might actually be worth it more if you're going for, I don't know, the title of Ohio's Duke of Ducks and making a business of raising ducks or duck eggs. I don't know. There's there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into this assessment and analysis that, you know, I can only give the broad strokes on expert counsel answers. So, the short answer is that the cheap and quick solution is drain tile, and you know it works because everyone in your area uses it, and that might just be the solution that gets you the usage of the land that you need. This can be a permaculture solution even if it uses plastic, if it works and doesn't create a net degradation of the environment. I use plastic all the time. If there's a different solution that actually makes sense with the cost analysis, I'll use it. But sometimes it's best to just use plastics. So, the water has to go somewhere, and if your land is already saturated, it's not really being a sponge and absorbing more water anyways. So, it's going to leave, no matter what you do. Digging canals to concentrate the water into ditches and drying out the grassland is a viable answer, but it's likely going to be very costly, depending on your situation. So, I mean, the benefits might be worth the cost. That just has to be a cost analysis that you do. The last point is to make sure you aren't forcing your preconceived ideas of what you want onto a landscape that won't be working with you. If the landscape is working against you, the landscape wants to be one thing, and you're trying to force it into a completely different kind of ecosystem, you're going to have a bad time. So it's easy to just get in the mindset of bulldozing your way across the landscape and trying to force your desires. Instead, we should look for what the landscape wants to be and what it will naturally be inclined to provide for and work with it. What kind of natural environment is it now? And how can we gently shape and direct it to enhance rather than fight against and force our vision. You'll have a much better time of it if you can flow with the natural inclination rather than stand against it and reshape it to a different type of ecosystem. I know that's not um, a happy, great answer, um, but I hope it's useful, and I hope that sheds some light on some of the solutions that might help you. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. I want to give you a few different ways to think about this. So 0.1% grade is actually great for what we call key line design. And we can take and spread that water out with swells and swell-like structures, and we can put in dams and ponds. 
And that will concentrate that water into those dams and ponds and thereby dry out the system. We can then take very fast-growing trees and plant them along our swellways, creating silvo pasture, which would be perfect for what you want to do. And what are trees? They're hydraulic pumps. The trees themselves will help to dry out the land a great deal. Ducks and geese can go into that system, whether cattle or sheep do or not. Now, I would be careful initially with sheep. I agree with Nick. Wet, damp environments and sheep and parasites go together on a high level, except... If we go with a hair sheep, our number one problem that we get with sheep in these wet environments is things like fly strike, which has to do with that thick wool and getting damp and wet. And if we go with a hair sheep, like a dorper or something similar, we're not going to have that. We're going to have to worry about internal parasites pretty much only, which we can just hold back on the sheep until we dry the land out to where that risk goes down. Uh, that would be one mitigation to Nick's advice there. Now, here's the other thing. You know, we could put these drains in because, well, we're not worried because our kids aren't going to take over. What if you, this is a total different thing, but what if you're working really hard to develop this beautiful piece of land and you realize that your kids are just not going to do it? Well, you can put your land into a land trust and you can enforce your will and over your land after you're dead. You could set that land up so that it must be leased to someone who wants to graze it and maintain it the way that you do, and your heirs get the profit off the land lease after the land taxes are paid for. And you can even set the parameters for what that leasee has to be required to do to maintain your land. You could even appoint some sort of land manager and decree for a number of decades that that person maintains land management access. There's a lot of ways legally for you to take a piece of land and make it stay the way you put it and become more of what you want out of it after you die. That's a separate discussion. But I would, if I had the opportunity to really transform a piece of land long term, especially a piece of ag land, a sizable piece of land, long before I would compromise on what I wanted to do on it, because my, my son or my grandson's not going to want to take it over someday, I would set up a legal framework that maintains the land in my absence. And, you know, if my child doesn't want to take it over, if, if my heir doesn't want to take it over, well, then maybe some of my wealth goes into a trust to provide for someone who does. Because I feel no obligation whatsoever to leave everything I have to my blood heirs, if you want to look at it that way. I want to, but if it's not going to be the right decision for something I've put a lifetime into then I'll make a different decision. Just some thoughts on that. Let's go on with the next one. Picking a home-based generator. Like I said, this is my day to take exception to almost every expert counsel answer we have. Here we go. Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've had a couple of emails from uh, some interested buyers. We've been down for the last couple of months due to parts availability. By the time this is airing, I am hoping that I've got a couple of kits on the website, so stay tuned for that. Speaking of generators, I've got a question from Chris uh, that is doing some homesteading. And he wants to know what kind of generator to buy, so let's get into it. I'm wondering what size generator I should be looking for for my situation and also if I should spend the money for something new or get a used generator. Question. My wife and I are going to be moving to our new homestead site of 30 acres in Kentucky soon, and we plan on living a simpler lifestyle 
though maybe not at first, that involves having little to no electricity other than a generator and small solar setup to charge our phones and laptop. Basically, I need the generator for running my tools for the cabin build and various construction projects I'll be doing while living in our wall tent. I'll be running an air compressor, not huge, but big enough to run automotive air tools, saws, and some lighting. Just wondering what size I should be looking for, a general idea on pricing, and what to look for if I buy used. As we don't have a lot of capital to work with, all the various things we are getting to prepare to live there. Thanks a lot, and look forward to hearing from you, Chris. All right, Chris, you sound like a great candidate for a suitcase-style inverter generator. Now, the big qualifier here is how big of the tools are you running. So you said small compressor. That's great. Um, I've got a small, probably like 7 or 8-gallon uh, compressor, and that will run off of my Honda 2000. Uh, sometimes it does struggle to kick it on if it's on the you know quiet mode where it idles down, but if you turn that off and run it up at full full speed, no issue whatsoever. So by the sound of what your compressor size is, I think you would fit into a 2000 watt inverter generator. Now, the other big ones are going to be your saws, and I don't know what kind of saws we're talking, I'm assuming like table saw and chop saw. And if they're bigger, probably like 15 amp models, you can forget about it. They are not going to run on a Honda 2000. If they are smaller or you're not going to be running them up that hard, there's a chance. But that really falls into the you might want to try it out before committing. Because the last thing you want to do is spend some money, get up there to your homestead, set everything up, and then the generator overloads and shuts off when you go to kick the saw on. So that's the only other device. Everything else that you mentioned would be great, you know, some lights, charging some stuff, and the inverter generator is going to really suit suit itself well for that because it's going to idle down, so you're not going to be running the traditional open frame generator at full speed just to, like, charge your phone or run a couple of lights. It's going to just make a lot of noise and burn a lot of gas, and there's really no reason for it, especially if you're going to be drawing less than the rated capacity of the generator. So the big qualifier is, what do I do? It's going to be based on what size saw you're going to be running. So if the saw is too big, you could step up and get out of that 2000 watt suitcase style and maybe go to like a 3000 or 3500 watt. And there's plenty of options out there, whether you're going with a Honda or a Champion or you go to Home Depot and get like a Ryobi. There's going to be plenty of name brands to choose from and varying prices, but you might have to step up to that size and it's not going to be a suitcase. It's going to be more of a box. It's probably going to be a little bit heavier, but you can still handle it by yourself, which is another big one. And it's going to be an inverter. So it's going to idle down under lower loads. So I think those are the features that you're looking for instead of going to like the traditional big open frame, full speed, 5,000 watt or above, probably way overkill for what you need because you're not running 240 volt appliances and you just don't have that capacity need. Now, when it comes to gas generators, especially inverter generators, I'm a bit of a Honda snob. I've got an EU2000, I've got an EM5000, you know, full speed, open frame Honda. Uh, I've had them for probably 10 years now. Uh, So I'm a Honda snob because they work. They're good quality. The parts availability are great. Even after a decade, the stuff is easily available to service what you got. But you buy once, you cry once, you're going to pay. So when you buy Big Red, you're paying for it, but you know what you're going to get. And I cannot recommend them highly enough. Now, uh, there's no longer an E2000. It's been superseded to a slightly bigger 2200. Those are in the $1,300 range right now. And I'm looking at the EU3000, which is kind of the next step up. And those are looking at like $2,350. Uh, the good news is that the pricing on them is pretty 
pretty standard across wherever you're buying it from. So very rarely are you going to find one at a, at a way better price. So honestly, buy one where you are going to get it serviced. So I would find the Honda dealer that sells power generation equipment and purchase it from them because that's probably where you're bringing it to have it serviced if you're not servicing yourself or if you have any problems with it, especially under warranty. I cannot recommend enough to buy it from the place that you're going to be bringing it to and do not buy it from a place or bring it to a place that sucks. So do some due diligence, look at some reviews, ask around, but you're at the mercy of the dealership if you can't fix it yourself. I would be paying very close attention to all of that. Uh, now, if you're not going to be buying a Honda, a brand new one because it's out of the budget, there's plenty of other good quality ones. Honestly, if you're buying a name brand and it's serviced by a dealer that you're buying it from, you can't go wrong. So when you buy a Ryobi, it might not be a bad unit, but you're buying it from Home Depot. And if you go to Home Depot, there's a bunch of people standing there with their face hanging out and none of them know how to fix a generator or probably sell you a bathroom fixture either. So that's the problem when you buy something from a big box store. Who do you bring it to? Okay, so now if you have a small engine shop that will fix it, great. But do they know how to fix a Ryobi or have access to the repair manuals or can do a repair under warranty? So, you know, if you're going to be spending over a grand, me personally, I want to have that dealer support network. So that's a turnoff when you're buying something like that. Now, if you buy a Champion, a lot of RV places sell Champion stuff. Again, they might not service it, so you want to check to make sure that they actually stand behind the product that they're selling you. But that's an advantage of buying a Champion. And obviously, the price point is going to be a lot lower than a Honda. So all things to consider. Now, if you're buying a used one, if you're starting off with a good name brand when it's new, there's a solid chance it's going to be in good shape when it's used. And the biggest determining factor, other than its overall condition, how it looks, like it wasn't dragged behind a truck, is has it been serviced and does it work? So the second one's easy. Fire it up, plug something into it, make sure it idles up, make sure the output is correct, like what you're plugging into it actually works. And, you know, you check the oil and all of that. Good to go. Now, the first part of that, you probably want to have some service records. So if you're checking the oil and it's black, there's a solid chance probably has never been serviced in its life. So a service record would be nice. I mean, obviously, if you're buying a higher-end one, if I was buying a used EU3000 and I was paying a grand or 1500 bucks for it, I'd be doing a little more research on it and making sure that he's got some receipts for some service or that the unit looks like it's been serviced. So... That's going to be the big one. If it's sat for a while, if the power output's not there, or the engine fails to start because it has a carb issue or something like that, you really just don't want to get into that. Uh, unless you're handy and you want to take a stab at fixing it and go that route because you want to save a couple of bucks. But honestly, if you're going to be up on a homestead, sounds like you're going to be probably far from civilization or going to be relying on this because there is no power on site. I would be buying a name brand, spending the money, investing in a tool. So probably a much bigger question is the plan of using very little to no electricity and might get, you know, the Sean Mills involved there if you're doing solar and battery as far as sizing and what kind of equipment. But you're relying on that because there's no utility power. And even if all you want to do is charge your phone, if the, if the equipment you have does not work, you're literally in the dark. Because there is no utility pole outside. So to me, you know, if you're buying a saw and all you're doing is a project, and once the project's done, you're going to just use that saw for some things here and there, you don't have to go out and buy the highest quality. You're not a home builder. You're just building a home. Get it? So maybe you don't have to spend as much money on a tool of really high quality. But 
when it comes to power generation and you're going to be using this thing for years or however long you're going to be on the homestead, I would recommend bite the bullet, buy once, cry once, go big red. All right, Chris, good luck on the new homestead and live the dream, man. Thanks for the questions, guys. Take care. So I think in this instance, if you buy a single Honda 2200-watt generator, you hate money. I think it is very bad economic advice, especially when the person uses the term limited capital or we only have a small amount of money. And so I'm going to give you a generator package deal here and tell you why I think it beats the Honda in every single measurable way. I'm going to recommend that you get the Champion 2,000-watt dual-fuel inverter generator, which is on sale right now at Amazon, shipped to your door. It'll be there tomorrow morning for $493. I'm going to recommend that over a $1,200-plus-dollar Honda. And by the way, the Honda's selling for $2,700 due to supply chain issues on Amazon right now. But to be fair, you can still get it for about $1,300 at somewhere like Home Depot. I have no idea what you're going to pay by buying it from an independent dealer. And I'm going to, I'll disagree with the independent dealer thing here in a minute. Okay, We'll get to that in just a minute. But if you want to just, you just want the generator and you're going to have it come to your house, and the odds that you're going to buy it and have an independent Honda dealer real close to where you're living anyway when you move to this place are probably pretty low. So we'll, 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 shel- we'll shelve that for a second. But now I've spent a spending uh, $1,300 at best. I've spent less than $500. I've got a generator with almost exactly the same amount of power, but it's dual fuel. And if I run out of gas and I have a, a propane tank sitting over there, all i got to do is hook it up, fire it up, and run, and I've still got power. And if I'm going to live off-grid, I'm probably putting at least a 120-gallon uh, pig on my property eventually. And now I have enough propane to run this thing for a very, 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 very long time. I've already won as far as I'm concerned, but I am not done yet. Also on sale right now by Champion is a 4,500-watt, which is also an inverter generator. is going to dial back for you when you're not using a heavy load. You can buy it for $725, and at this point you have a dual-fuel 2,000-watt champion. You have a gas manual start 4,500-watt champion, and you are out $1,218 versus $1,300 for the Honda. You now have two generators. You now have 6,500 watts of total running power. If one of your generators somehow experiences nuclear fusion, blows up like atomic bomb, but beams itself through space and time to the asteroid belt at the beginning of the solar system and completely evaporates and is gone forever and cannot be repaired no matter where you take it, you still have another generator. And you still out less money. Now, let me talk about this independent dealer, and I'm going to call it what I think it generally ends up being mythology. If I have a service shop nearby, and I take my Honda generator or my Champion generator, small engine shop, whatever. I take my generator to them. And they treat me differently as a customer paying them to do work on my generator, service or repair or otherwise, than they do if I bought it there. I do not want to do business with those people at all ever again, Infinity. I am paying you for a service. What if I bought my Honda generator in Florida and I moved to Michigan and you're going to treat me not as good because you're a Honda service shop, but I bought my generator in Florida? 
we don't even need to have this conversation or you're not qualified to do work for me. You see how that works? When I take my, my truck, my Toyota truck in, you know, at least you think I'm against Japanese brands. When I take my Toyota truck to a Toyota dealership to get work done on it, I do happen to take it to the one that I leased it from. Why? Because it's the closest, most convenient, good one to do so. If I moved up to Plano, I'm not driving down here. I'm going to go to the local Toyota dealership up there, and I expect and will receive the same care and treatment that any other person bringing a Toyota to a Toyota dealership would expect. So if I'm taking my Honda generator to a place that is a Honda service shop by trade, I expect to be treated exactly the same as if I bought it there yesterday. Exactly the same. And if I'm not going to be, I don't want to do business with those people because you should charge me what the work requires you to charge me. If it's a warranty issue, the manufacturer is paying it. It does not mean you are honoring the warranty. It means the manufacturer is. So if there is service work to be done on a piece of equipment that's in, you know, warrantied by the manufacturer and I bring it to you, you're just sending the bill to somebody else. So a good shop's a good shop regardless of where I bought the product. So I completely disagree with the advice here. Now, let's, let's change it to where I can agree with it. If you have lots of money and money is not an object for you and you look at the Honda and you think I want the best and the Honda is the best in its class and I always buy the best and I have the money and I don't care and you buy the Honda, then I agree with your decision. Completely and totally agree with your decision. I still think you hate money. I still think you have one generator when you could have had two generators. And for the love of God, for almost the same price as one Honda EU2000, that could have had two 4,500-watt champions and for a couple hundred bucks more had the, the, uh, the, 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 the bridge between them, the parallel cables between them, to where they can run independently as two 4,500s or run together as a 9,000, and they're still inverter generators, and champions are great. And if champions exploded into nuclear fusion once every two years and Hondas last for 20, I would disagree with myself right now. But they don't. If it was hard to get service on a champion generator, I will, might agree, but it's not. Any good small engine shop can service any of these, and getting parts for a champion is not hard. This is what I think about the Honda. It is the most overrated damn thing in the prepper universe, in my opinion. If you look at real-world reality, what you have in the Honda is a very good, slightly better than its competitor's product, with the best marketing ever done on a small engine product ever. It is like Volvo and safety in the 80s. Was a Volvo safer than a Mercedes? Maybe a tiny, tiny bit, but they had the brand. And that's where I think we are with Honda today. And I expect that it's going to get more and more expensive for those parts for that Honda when it needs, not if, when, because they all need service. And I'm also making one more assumption here before I go on, to be fair. I'm assuming that you're going to do the regular scheduled maintenance on your generator that you're supposed to do, like changing the oil, etc., Hmm. All right. I don't mean to sound adversarial here. I just think that you're making a poor financial decision in this instance if you go with Big Red at a couple thousand watts when you could have a hell of a lot more and two generators for the same or less money. Hey guys, Tool Me and Tim here coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another segment for the expert council. So let's dive right in. In. This week comes from a user over on Float, and their question was, 
Hey, I'm getting into doing property cleanups, garbage hauling, and I tend toward keeping stuff more than throwing it away. How do you personally determine whether or not you'll save something, even though it has value? How do you determine whether you should keep it or not? Okay, so this is an issue for me. It has been in the past because we do a lot of cleanups, a lot of bank properties, uh, rentals, that kind of stuff. And there's always value in so much of the stuff that ends up getting thrown to the dump. The problem is, if I kept absolutely everything, I would be swimming in junk that someday, somehow, I'm either going to use or I'm going to sell. And it becomes overwhelming. And actually, my garage got full one time when we had a bunch of furniture we thought we might be able to sell someday. So we had to come up, or I personally had to come up with a formula for how I could decide on what to keep and what not. So I got six questions here that I normally ask myself, and it helps me bring things into perspective when I'm deciding whether or not I want to save something or I should save something. So, and these are going to change no matter, you know, whatever your personal situation is. But the first one I always ask is, is it a construction material? And if it is, then I keep it. Plywood, two by fours, angle iron, insulation, molding, anything like that. Anything that I know that I can use down the road in a job that I normally would spend money on, I set it aside. I have a rack in my storage container for cut off plywood and anything long and skinny goes up overhead in my garage. But if it's building materials, I keep it. Can I use it in my business? So say is it a ladder or a step stool? or paint rollers, or uh, a paint roller telescopic extension handle, that kind of stuff. If I can use it in my business, and it's something that I would turn around and have to buy at some point as a tool or as a piece of product that I use, then I save it. Number three, is it a prep item? So, is it brand new, empty five-gallon pails that I know I could use? How about mason jars? That seems to be something that is always left behind in properties. How about jerry cans? Those are another great thing. Any of that kind of stuff. So if it's a preparedness item that I know I will use and I would have to spend money on elsewhere, then I keep it. Now we're getting into more of the depends area. But if it's something that's valuable, the first thing I ask myself, (laughs) is it small? So, you know, if it's a great big, I don't know, painting on a wall that I think I might be able to sell, but it might have to sit around for a long time, then I'm probably not going to keep it. Some of the things that I've sold in the past were collectible uh, mini discs that were like CDs. I sold uh, Pink Floyd, one of those, for really expensive. Sometimes autographed basketball cards, I sold some of those. Vintage video games, something that's small that I know won't take up a lot of space if it doesn't sell right away. Some guitar amps I picked up, that was another thing. Something that's small that I know will sell, but it might sit around for a little while. Now another one, if it's large, can I sell it immediately? And by immediately, I mean, can I get somebody to come to the property and pay me to haul it away? That, to me, is ideal. Right now, I've got some engines at a property that I'm looking at. I don't want to haul them away, but I think they have value. And if I post them online, hopefully I can sell them and somebody will come and haul them away. So for me, I'm not bringing anything large back to my property anymore because it just gets in the way. And if it doesn't sell, that is what it is. So for me, if it's large, can I sell it immediately? Right on site. Post it online and hopefully somebody will get it. And remember, price it to sell because it's money you wouldn't have made anyway. Now the next one, 
Is it worth my time to haul it home instead of to the dump? So, things like leaves, things like grass. Every time I post online all the grass clippings and all the leaves that I end up hauling off to the landfill, to the compost piles, people are always like, Tim, why don't you set up piles and, and sell them as compost and that kind of stuff? Well, I don't have space for that. That's the big problem. I live in a suburban area with some room, but not a lot of room. I like leaves. I like grass. I hate to throw it away all the time, but I just don't have the room to be able to make it work. And no matter how much it's worth, if it's in your way and you're not able to sell it quickly enough, firewood could be another one. I kind of save some firewood, but for some people, it takes up too much space. Scrap steel is another one. You know, steel, to sell steel, to make money off it, you have to sell it by the ton. A ton of scrap steel is quite a bit. I don't have room for it. But you know what I do have room for? A few old garbage cans full of copper pipe, copper wires. I save all the automotive batteries I come across and all the brass I come across. And sometimes stainless steel. Because that stuff I can cash in, buy the pound, and make money. Uh, Returnables are another. Uh, Bottles, cans, that kind of stuff. So anything that has immediate value, that doesn't take up too much space, that I can turn around and either make money off it or use it as something that I would have to spend money on anyway, tends to be the way that I decide on what garbage to throw away and what isn't garbage and it comes home to me. So I hope that helps. If you have any other questions, anybody, you can follow up with me at therealtimcook at gmail.com over at toolmantim.co. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, the easiest way is to come by for uh, Thursday evening and Sunday evening, the workshop podcast. We do a live stream, sometimes even a Saturday morning one. We have three episodes a week. Repairedness on Thursdays, where I talk about home maintenance, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. In Sunday evenings, I interview handymen, people from all across, all walks of life, preparedness, entrepreneurs, that kind of stuff. So yeah, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, drop by, check it out. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So Tim and I are the same mindset here. I mean, my addition is if it's valuable, then you should be able to sell it within a couple days. If you can, it's not as valuable as you think that it is. However, like I said, I'm beginning to understand more about my grandfather and his junk addiction. He lived through the Depression. I think we're fixing to live through another one. And a lot of things you just think, if I ever do need that, it's not worth saving it. It'd be easier to procure it at the time that I actually needed it. Because I only have so much space, and when you get too much stuff, you stop being organized with it. You don't know where the hell it is anyway, and then you end up buying the damn thing that you actually had because you can't find it. I understand all that. I get it. But what I wanted to add to this one is there is another option. So let's go back to the leaves and stuff like that that Tim hauls away. I get he doesn't have the space. There are people that do. There are people that do, and generally you end up taking those to the dump or some sort of, for instance, a lot of people around here take all that type of wood trimmings and leaves and stuff to a place that sells compost, a big giant place that sells compost called Silver Creek Materials. They're only a few miles from here. Until I found a better supply, I used to buy from them, and I'd go down there and load up two yards of compost in the back of my truck, come home, and I had to pay them for it. The interesting thing is the guy that works for a landscaping company or a Splendor or whatever that took all of the, the, the beautiful wood trimmings down there had to pay them to take it. So they, they make money taking it, 
and then they make money selling it back to people. And there's people like me that if you said, Jack, I, I do a couple yard cleanups every week, and I end up with you know, 20, 30, 40 bags of leaves, would you like them? If you not, if, even if you didn't sell the, the stuff to me, if instead of paying the dump, you could dump it off at my place, just, hey, you can pull in here and throw it all here. As long as it's actually leaves and not actual garbage, you can keep throwing it there for the rest of your life. I will never tell you no. You're ahead. And if somebody was willing to do that in quantity with regularity for me, I probably would make some sort of a deal per, per yard or something. I'd probably pay something like $5 a yard for leaves, you know. Maybe a little less. I don't know. Maybe two bucks. It's money you didn't have. Like you said, price it to move. Um, when it comes to steel, I think what you need to do with with junk that has to be sold in bulk, like the copper and aluminum stuff, throw it in garbage cans or whatever, and when you have enough, take it in. There's, there's money in that. I agree with him. But steel, here's what you do with steel. You need to find somebody whose entire purpose in life is harvesting junk metal. When some crazy drunk idiot at 2 o'clock in the morning plowed through 200 feet of my fence and the guy that bid the job and got the job after the insurance company agreed to pay for it, he was out there doing it and they cut the fence up and they cut the poles out and they got everything ready and they set the new poles. And while he was doing that, a gentleman pulled up with a trailer and started going through it and dealing with all the crap and loading up all that steel and taking it away. And I talked to him. And I said, what's, what's the deal here? And he said, well, and he didn't, he, the, the guy putting the fence up didn't get any money from this guy. He just came and took it away. But he took it to the junkyard. And what the guy putting the fence in said is, but now I don't have to. And it cost me money to load that stuff up and take it to the junkyard. So if I'm doing cleanup operations, I have heavy junk material that's not going to be worth that much money, but I have a junk man who is looking for it, I can get him as the hookup instead of paying him to take it away. I get paid to take it away, and I give the part that I don't want to deal with away. Or maybe he even cuts me in for 5% of the take. There, and you got when you're doing these kind of, this is not a side hustle for Tim, obviously, right? It's a full-time business, but it's a hustle. This is the kind of hustle, and what I mean by hustle is you want to stack monetary uh, flow into it wherever you can. It's, it's similar to what John Dowie does, selling microgreens, but he's got a supplier of maple syrup, and now I dump the maple syrup in all my, you know, kind of bougie local establishments that now have a supply of homemade maple syrup that are part of what they do as well. Things like that. That's just, and I'm not saying it'll work. I'm saying it's, it's worth exploring. And the more you're into a specific revenue model and the more of this byproduct you have, the more leverage you have in doing it. But I am in complete agreement with Tim. When people say, well, it's, it's worth, it's got value. Really? Does it have liquid value? Can you get it sold in the next few days while you're doing the job? No? Then it doesn't have as much value as you think it does. You already have somebody paying you to take it away. And you can't find somebody that wants it. Price to move. Then it probably doesn't have the value that it does in your head, and you're going to turn into my grandfather, and I'm sure my dad's still trying to get rid of shit from that. All right, with that, let's uh, hear from Amy Dingman on homeschooling. Hey, everybody, this is Amy from A Farmer's Kind of Life, and I'm excited to be back with another question about homeschooling. This one is from Jessica, and she asked, how do you know when you're doing enough in homeschool? 
She goes on to say, I am homeschooling a 10-year-old boy who's in the process of being diagnosed for ADD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, and dyscalculia. Because of this, we have moved from an all-in-one curriculum, Oak Meadow, to more of a research-based child and interest-led curriculum, Fun Schooling Journals, for the rest of this school year so we can figure out his learning needs with these learning differences. He has really enjoyed the more laid-back learning, and so have I, but I worry that he's not learning enough. So my question is, how do I make sure he's learning enough? I live in Illinois, so I don't have to track anything yet since he's still in grade school, but I always like to write down what he's done for the day. This learning method makes that much more difficult to do. I'm working on my mindset, but any suggestions would be appreciated. Jessica in Illinois. Thank you for your question, Jessica. And this is a super common question and a super valid question. And part of it comes because we've been brought up with a school system that has all these checkmark in a box ways of assessing how much kids know. And we also have grown up with this kids should know a certain thing at a certain age or a certain grade. And so we go into homeschooling with that in the back of our head. Now, when you decide to do something that is more child led or little more unstructured or even unschooling, it can be really hard to look at your kid and know they are learning or that they're learning enough because you don't necessarily have those easy check mark in a box assessments. And as parents who take on homeschooling, we want to make sure we're doing things right for our kids, right? We don't want to screw them up. So to answer your question, I think there are two things that you can do. Number one, I think the first thing to do is figure out what does enough mean for you? What does enough mean for your family? You have to define what the things are that you think are important for your kid to know right now. You know, did I think it was important that my kids knew how to read and write? Yeah, I did. Did I think it was important for my kids to memorize the state capitals? No, I didn't. So right now, you have to figure out what do you think is important for your kid to know. Then when you have that figured out, You have to figure out a way to assess that if you feel like you need that hard info. And keep in mind, assessing what your kid knows doesn't have to be a worksheet or a test. If you're in the kitchen and you set out a quarter cup measuring cup and you tell your kid that you're going to make cookies and you need him to put a cup and a half of flour in the bowl, and if he can figure that out, you have just assessed that he has that knowledge and now you know and you can move on. You said that you like to write down everything that he's done in a day and that that's a little bit harder to do with a fun schooling method. So it reminded me of something that we used to do. One thing we did for a while was there are these five broad areas that we are supposed to teach in Minnesota, um, reading and writing, math, science, history, and then health, FIED. And I just had those five areas listed on a piece of paper. They were copied off on a piece of paper and I would pull out a piece of paper and every day I would write down how we hit those five areas. And so that just made it work in my brain like, okay, we are doing stuff. And it was really nice to save those sheets of paper and and say, look, we actually are doing something. It was really nice on those days when I was struggling to look back at all those sheets of paper and go, okay, we are doing stuff. We are learning stuff. So that is another suggestion that might work for you. It sounds to me like you have a kid who has some different things going on with his learning. And so to me, doing enough, you know, quote unquote enough, I think is making sure that your kid is learning in a way that is somewhat enjoyable for the both of you and that you see some kind of progress with. I think that's a really great thing that you're doing that's better than struggling through a more traditional curriculum that might not be working well with his learning needs. So I guess at the end of the day, it's does he know more about something today than he did yesterday? I think that means you're heading in the right direction. So just a couple notes for perspective. Um, if I can babble on for a little bit longer here, it's important to be confident in the choice you made. 
that struggle of are we doing enough or is he learning enough is really common. And I find sometimes it comes because we're comparing our kid to some other kid. We're comparing our kid to who we were when we were their age. Or it also comes because grandma or your friend or your husband's coworker made some snide comment about how much your kid knows or how much you're teaching them. You have to be confident in you and your kids and your family and your educational journey. So don't let that stuff bother you. The other thing is know that your kids are always learning. In Minnesota, you are supposed to test your kids every year to prove that they're learning stuff. And so we were a little bit more structured with our learning back in the beginning and, and we moved towards unschooling. But the year we moved to our farm, um, it was a very crazy year. We were, we were not doing a lot of, you know, quote unquote school, as you would call it. It was a huge process to get to the farm. And so that was really our concentration that year. And so we finally get to the farm and I'm like, oh, we got to go get these kids tested, you know, so we can follow the rules for the state. And that year, they scored the highest they have ever scored on that test or had ever scored on that test. And I thought, we had such an unstructured year, such a crazy year. And it was it was crazy to me that they took this test and they scored as high as they did. And it proved to me, you know what? Kids are always learning. Kids are always learning. And after that, we stopped testing our kids, even though we're supposed to test our kids every year. We stopped testing our kids. Another thing that I had to learn, especially as my kids got older, was as a homeschooling parent, I'm not just teaching my kids the skills and the info. I'm also teaching them how to learn. And when you teach your kids how to learn, when they come up against things that they decide they should know where someone says, hey, you need to know this, they will have the skills to be able to figure out how to learn them. My youngest graduates from homeschool this year and almost has a two-year college degree under his belt. And it's the same story for my oldest who graduated last year. So this approach that is less checkmark in a box can certainly be successful. So trust the process. Trust the process. Know that it is completely normal one week to think, oh my God, we are not doing enough. And then the next week, your kid is going to be playing this crazy history of trivia board game with his grandma and answering questions about history that you had no idea he even knew. Ask me how I know that. So I hope this helps you out, Jessica. If you want to talk more, you can email me at amy at afarmishkindoflife.com. And hey, guys, send Jack more questions about homeschooling and family life for me to answer. And also check out the Farmish Kind of Life podcast and the Farmish Kind of Life video channels. Have a great day. I will talk to you soon. Okay. I know I've had some disagreements. I have none here. Right, have some disagreements with the council. And again, I think that's healthy. It's just different. It's not even disagreements. It's different perspectives. Uh, in general, I agree with everything that was said today. I just have some different perspectives. In this one, I, I have additional rather than different perspective. So I, I understand this compulsion to be doing enough, and I deal with it constantly with my wife and, and, and dealing with our grandkids and, and basically worried that they're not doing enough, getting it done fast enough, etc., And the entire point of moving your education to your home is not to replicate that which the state provides in a schoolhouse. It's That's not what it is. It is to provide a learning environment that is superior to what the state does for your child or children, recognizing the individuality of every single human being and walking away from the ridiculous idea of one size fits all education for people who drastically different. The door just closed 
as my wife walked out the door with my grandson and granddaughter to take my grandson to art class. So all the homeschool stuff just got put up. Whatever was done was done for the day, and it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. My, my granddaughter will be over there, and she'll have her own little art supplies and just kind of free ball and doing whatever she wants off to the side while Grandma sits with her and talks to her and observes what's happening with Braylon and this teacher. The teacher that my, my grandson is learning from is one of the top independent artists in the state of Texas. He's won multiple awards. He's multiple disciplinary artist. He does all different forms of, of artwork, and he is giving him individualized attention to something that he is becoming more and more enamored with. And he is not one of those people who just picks up and can draw, but he's getting good. He's actually being coached into becoming good. And a, a couple of weeks ago, my my wife said that the teacher, this guy Brad, showed him a picture that one of his students that's like 14 years old did, and Braylon's like 11. And Braylon said, wow, that's really good. And, and, and the guy told him, look, I'm looking at where you're at right now. If you keep up with this, you'll be way better than that by the time you're 14. And he wasn't kidding. It wasn't one of these like false, inspirational, you'll be Michael Jordan someday stories. right? He was dead serious. My wife, you could tell he was dead serious. He, he sees the natural talent, and but it needs to be channeled. Okay, To me, that's just valuable. It's him learning that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell and learning all the state capitals and things like that. Because maybe that's where he wants to go. And I keep explaining to Braylon that there's multiple ways to use art in your life. There's art like you're learning, drawing and things like that. He's, you know, he's, he less sports, so he's, he's, he's constantly drawing logos and things like that, but it's teaching him the skill set. I'll explain, like, artistry today has moved way more into graphic arts, but learning art as a discipline, would, if you ever want to learn graphic artistry, that'll help you there. Or if you look at what he loves looking at what I do. And I'm like, landscape design is art. Figuring out where to plant trees and being able to draw the schematics to where somebody can put them there is art. Architecture is a form of art. There's so much art in the world. So what you're doing now is, and he doesn't, I don't think, envisions himself as an artist as a full-time living. Right now, anyway, he doesn't see that. But there's so many ways that discipline can play into something else. Are you doing enough? And I'll tell you, I, I keep saying this, but I'll never stop saying it. Mike and Sue LaPrice, who were the, the, the previous council members for this subject of homeschooling, it was Sue that said to my wife, let go of it, Dorothy. You can't make a child learn a thing they don't want to learn. And you can't keep them from learning a thing that they do want to learn, which means that human beings, we learn things when we need to know them. And it'll be okay. Don't worry about college. Half the people in college do not belong there. And of the other half, most of them are on the wrong path in that college at the wrong time. So there's a 75% chance that the idea that your kid should go from high school straight to college is a bad decision anyway. So let it go. You want to really let it go? Here's, here's all you got to do to let this shit go. Look at the reality that there is a TV show hosted by Jeff Foxworthy. I'm not sure if it's still on. It's called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And they ask these people, grown-ass people, and they're not stupid. They're always like people with professions. That's what makes it ironic. It's not like, we have Dilbert here, and Dilbert is uh, living on government's assistance. He lives in a single-wide trailer, and his greatest skill is the ability to apply navel jelly to the roof of his trailer so it doesn't completely rust through. 
he graduated fourth grade, we're here to see today if he could, if he could, if he went back to school, would he be able to graduate fifth grade? Dilbert, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. That's not how the show goes. It's like today we're joined by Margaret. She's a physicist. Today we're joined by Daryl. He's a successful lawyer, a real estate investor, or something like that. You know. So these people have lives. They're good at what they do. They're very good. And then they say, we have a question for you now from the third grade. And they ask them a, a third grade level science question. And unless it's the physicist, most of the time they get it wrong or they don't know the answer. So they say, I want to ask, you know, my, 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 my fourth and fifth grade kids over here, uh, I want to write off their paper or whatever the hell it is, use their lifeline to these kids. And the kids generally know the answer. Is that because the kids are smarter than the adult? No. No. That's because the kid just had that subject six months, six months or six weeks or six days ago. That's why. Because it's fresh in their mind, and they're in it every day, and they're doing it. Now, when we take that kid, we can magically go forward in the future to where they're about 32 years of age, ask them the same question they knew on that show, especially if they were never on that show, so that question wasn't anchored in their mind as being on that show. And unless you're somebody like me that has this freakish retarded memory for all kinds of ridiculous bullshit that's not necessary, you're not going to know the answer that you knew when you were a fifth grader. So are they doing enough? Is that even a question we should be asking? Why are we measuring against a system that is compounded failures within it and judging ourselves? The question you only need to ask as a homeschooler, am I providing my child the opportunity to educate themselves and are they taking advantage of it? That's it. It really is that simple. With that, I want to go into my segment today, and I want to read you the quote again that inspired it from Nelson Mandela. I was called a terrorist yesterday, but when I came out of jail, many people embraced me, including my enemies. And that is what I normally tell other people who say they are struggling for liberation, who say those who are struggling for liberation in their country are terrorists. And my question for you is, why do they always say such things? I mean, Department of Homeland Security just basically said people like me are terrorists. I mean, they said that in an official memorandum they put out about a month ago. That it, it, you, you, you basically are a domestic terrorist today if you're engaged in activities that cause people to lose faith in government. My entire purpose in life is to make you lose faith in government. I'm not going to hide from their bullshit. I will struggle for liberation in my own country, and I will be called a terrorist for it. I, I, I advocate no violence whatsoever. You've never heard me call for violence once. Now, the other day, you might have heard me say I might use violence. Using violence and calling for violence are different things. Somebody questioned when I said the other day, when I had John and Nicole on, and I said, if somebody talked to my five-year-old granddaughter about sex and transforming their gender and discussed their private parts with them, and then told them not to speak to their parents about it, and I found out about it, that person's going to disappear, and the last thing they'll see is a backhoe bucket shoving dirt on top of them. And that person said, well, Jack wouldn't really do that. He's just saying that for effect. He'd use the police department. Well, apparently today I can't use them. Now, see, that's the thing. This is when people become violent. When things that require force are no longer enforced as law while force is used against them for, for doing things that are peaceful. It, what, what we're talking about used to be considered, uh, it, it, at minimum, a grooming form of pedophilia, and it was a crime. 
Today it's public policy that you're allowed to do that. So I don't have the option of the police anymore. And if somebody is trying to sexually abuse my granddaughter, I'm just saying they're going to disappear. Maybe I had nothing to do with it if this is being listened to in the future. I don't know, but I have a funny feeling in my gut they're going to disappear. But that's not why it would be considered a terrorist according to the Department of Homeland Security. No, it would be because I have pointed out to you all the ways in which your government has failed to do its sworn duty as your government. I have pointed out that your government continuously lies to you. That makes me a terrorist. I want you to be free mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. That makes me a terrorist. So when I tell you, and I told you in the very beginning of the whole COVIDs thing, for instance, cloth masks do not prevent the spread of an airborne, aerosolized virus, and this is known science, with 70 years of, of RCTs, a total of 12 RCTs in 12 years that say this is not true and your government's lying to you. That makes me a terrorist, even though it's the truth. In fact, the fact that it is the truth is really what makes me a terrorist, because that's why you would then lose faith in government. If I point out to you, for instance, that the vaccine didn't work worth a damn, and we have the numbers to prove it now, and the government is lying to you, then you lose faith in government. That puts me on terror watch list, according to Department of Homeland Security. This is their memo, not mine. I'm not claiming this. They stated it. If I point out to you that robbing future generations is leading us into financial bankruptcy, right, and ethical bankruptcy and moral bankruptcy and that your government is the one doing it, that would probably, if you believe me, cause you to begin to lose faith in government. And therefore, according to Department of Homeland Security, once again, Jack Spirico needs to be watched. He's a domestic terrorist. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. There was a time when they had the FBI following John Lennon around of the Beatles, former Beatles at that point, and doing all kinds of trumped-up shit to John Lennon because he was telling people things like, hey, maybe we don't need to be involved in foreign wars, and that made John Lennon, and saying, hey, marijuana won't kill you if you smoke it the way the government says, well, that's terrorism. Every single person, especially those who speak the truth and are effective with it, that defies the current order of any nation is labeled a terrorist or something similar. And the reason is because the average person is stupid enough that that appeal to emotion fallacy is effective. That's why. That's why. That's why we can easily still be led into foreign wars. Think about this. If you're my age or older, you grew up in literal fear of World War III. A legitimate fear, by the way. A legitimate fear that one day sirens could go off, you'd see rockets coming in, and the last thing you'd see is a mushroom cloud if you were lucky. And if you weren't lucky, you'd see the aftermath of it for a few miserable days before your skin fell off and you died. And everything in our ethos was to avoid this you got to stand up to the Soviet Union. We've got to avoid this at all costs. And in the same time frame and prior to it, we involved ourselves in multiple foreign conflicts that were all absolute disasters. The first one was the Korean conflict. Then we had the Vietnam War. We had multiple conflicts throughout the world, and then most recently our major involvement of the, in the Middle East. And every single place that we touched a thing, we failed. 
We absolutely failed. Korea, we could have succeeded in three weeks and went back to the way things were and not killed 25% of the population of North Korea, by the way, if we had done that. But no, we decided we were going to pursue North Korea's military to the Yellow River on the border with China and drag China into the war in the winter when it was easy to cross the freaking Yellow River and turn what could have been a two- or three-week finished, done, we have reestablished the order that we agreed to, and you better stick to it this time. Instead, we turned it into a three-year bloodbath. And that's the best one we have. That's the closest thing to the success we have of involving ourselves in foreign wars since that time. Everything else is far and away worse. Vietnam goes in the loss column. Goes in the loss column. Iraq is a worse country and less stable today than it was before we touched it. So is Libya. So is Egypt with our involvement there and, and, and causing the Arab Spring. We have a conflict between Yemen and Saudi Arabia that we have made worse. We know what we did in Afghanistan, and yet, in spite of the fact that World War III 30 years ago was to be avoided at all costs, and the average person of age today that has the most say in society, 40 to 60, those are the people with the most say in society, we are on the cusp of pushing ourselves into World War III with popular support due to appeal to emotion fallacy. Look how bad Putin is. And anybody that says anything about, hey, maybe the guy's a shitbag, but maybe we shouldn't be doing this, is a Russian, tool of Putin, a terrorist. Why? Because, America, you are so stupid that it works. And your government will do things that work. So, tying this back into our prior segment, you better homeschool your kids. You better homeschool your kids. The fact that the average person out there right now is chanting for World War freaking 3 and actually believes that if Russia just wanted to wipe out all of Ukraine, they couldn't do it. That the Ukrainians are just that tough. They're just that strong, but they still need us. Right? Come on. That alone, the, the average, that we have people out there today double masking. I saw it last week myself. I couldn't believe it. In Texas. People walking around with two masks on. That even after we have conclusive proof that these vaccines cause more harm than protect, than provide protection, people still line up and get them. You got Fauci saying we can expect a surge in COVID cases around November, conveniently lining right up to the election, so they can have more excuses for mail-in ballots and people nod their head. He's so smart. St. Fauci, let me get my Fauci candle out and light, light up the shrine with it. They do it because it works and because they, for once in their feeble-minded, psychopathic lives are telling the truth as they see it. If you are in power, and if you crave power above all other things, and the, the way our system works, the only people that end up with power are those that crave it. You have to be a complete sleazeball to rise to positions of power 
in an oligarchy. And that's what, this is not a democracy. It is an oligarchy. And the oligarchy is the natural evolution of a democracy. All democracies turn into oligarchies. I'll say it one more time. All democracies eventually turn into oligarchies. All democracies. And if you tell me we're not a democracy one more time, I'm going to come to your house and smack you. We are a democracy. We're a republic. Yes, we are a democratic republic. Okay? We are a constitutional republic in the form of a representative democracy. We are both. And all democracies, whether they are pure democracies, whether they are democratic republics, whether they are constitutional republics that elect their representatives through a democratic process, all of them become oligarchies. All of them. Russia is a democracy. Don't believe this. He's a dictator. So is Biden, as far as I'm concerned. He just has a, sh a shorter shelf life as a dictator. I mean, Putin's not the one that shut down businesses. Putin's not the one that told people they couldn't leave their homes. Trump and Biden have done these things. Putin's been reelected over and over and over again by a lot higher margin Then Biden got elected, Trump got elected, Obama got elected, Bush got elected, or Clinton got elected. Just saying. Much higher margins. Much higher margins. Much less discrepancy per election. Does that make Putin good? No. Because all democracies, including Russia's, turn into oligarchies of one flavor or another. And if you rise to serious power in an oligarchy, you do it through malice. You do it through malice, whether it's a bureaucratic point of power, running a major agency, right? whether it's an elected form of power like being a high-level elected official, or being one of the oligarchs yourself. It is done through malice. The system requires it. So that means that everybody in power craves power above all. The oligarch craves power, and their weapon is money to obtain it. The bureaucrat craves power, And their weapon is politics to obtain it. And the internal politics and the politician craves power and their weapon to obtain it is external politics. It's all the same ilk. So, of course, when you point out effectively with fact, logic, reason, and truth the flaws in their system, you are seen as a threat to their power And anyone who is a threat to power, to those in power, is, of course, a terrorist. To the point where, just like racist, we have removed all meaning. I think all of us have an image in our mind when we think terrorist today. Usually it involves somebody from the Middle East, which is, well, asinine, just because many terrorists have come from the Middle East. But it's someone that blows shit up, or someone that poisons people. Or someone that shoots a bunch of people. It's someone that would use chemical weapons. It's someone that would commit mass homicide. But we'll just use it for people that say, hey, the system of government we have is not what you're told, and here's proof. Terrorist. Hey, I disagree with this person. Well, you're a racist. Destroy the meaning of the word while preserving the meaning of the word in the mind of the feeble. And you have the formula for the control of a nation. And it's why I say this nation's glory days are gone. Take a trip to Walmart on the 1st or the 15th and tell me it isn't.
walk into a Fortune 500 company today and ask to see the head of HR and ask them to show you their employee policy handbook and explain it to you and how it's enforced and tell me. And now you've gone to two extremes in society. Upper echelon, high-income, white-collar worker, all the way down to people living on government subsistence and trailer parks and projects. And there's nothing in there that looks anything like the America that I grew up in at all. Not even close. We're at a point where we have to rebuild. And if saying we need to rebuild a new America makes me a terrorist, okay. Okay. Maybe one day, maybe one day, my friends and enemies both will embrace me. Maybe I'll go through hell before that. I don't know. But I know one thing. I'll draw my last breath before I stop speaking the truth. With that, I want to wrap things up. I want to remind you guys that if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us, become a member of the Member Support Brigade, use the discounts, and get your money back. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and just click on Members to learn more. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.